So we are back today to the book of Romans, chapter 2, and we'll go ahead and read our text right from the get-go, Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Back in my uh, college days, I was a fan of the comedian Steve Martin who was a stand-up guy before he became a movie guy. And one line of his that became uh, exceedingly popular and was often quoted was his exaggerated and exasperated, well, excuse me, usually with an arrow through his head, as you see in the picture. <laughs> and I thought of that often as I <coughs> worked through this text about human excuses that we make for ourselves and for our sin. We saw in the last, uh, last chapter that our creation in God's image and the witness of his creation to the reality of God, that eliminates all grounds for excuse making from every direction. Part of the, part of the history, you know, the COVID virus experience has been the incredible excuses which some of our political leaders made when they were caught violating the rules that they had put in place. You know what I'm talking about? No, no shortage of examples of that. The mayor of San Francisco was caught maskless at a concert when that was prohibited for everyone. And uh, the mayor said, oh, but the music was really great. <laughs> of course, the speaker of the house was caught breaking the law by getting her hair done at a time when that was not lawful and claimed that she had been set up. No apologies, just excuses. I mean, really, uh, hearing the excuses was one of the few fun features of the COVID <laughs> era. But for those of us on a mental diet of Pauline theology, and I hope that's all of us, we know we actually have no valid excuses. So let's like, dig deeper as we get into the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. We end chapter 1 with an account of thoroughgoing human depravity. Humans rejected God. We lost our minds having done so. We abandoned ourselves to our baser appetites and then sought to establish justification for ourselves and for those who participated with us in our debauchery. Many there are who reject all the rules and insist uh, sometimes that there aren't any actual rules and that we should all just we should all just follow our hearts, you know, do our own thing. But within the human family, there are some differences, some who are different. Many of Paul's followers or fellow Jews, for example, were among the different. And you know what? Some of us are among the different. We are principled people with standards for our behavior, right? Often such folks as that are religious and therefore, the group gathered here before me would likely contain plenty of such 
men and women. As we come to Romans 2, the apostle turns his attention more from the libertine to the legalists, more from the prodigals to the older brothers, more from the free spirits to the self-righteous. Pre-Christian Paul would have put himself in that latter category. He, he was an uptight religious dude with lots of rules that he insists that everyone had to follow. And I think, I think he includes himself in this group because in verse 2, he actually uses the plural pronoun. He refers to a we, a we who know about the judgment of God that is bound to come upon lawbreakers. So what is the problem with this particular crowd? I mean, as I said, these folks are principled. They don't approve of godless conduct. Where are they going astray? Well, the apostle indicates that the problem here is that they have standards, but they don't always live by them. They condemn sin, but not when it applies to themselves. Ah, maybe you've seen this done. <laughs> maybe you know family members or political leaders who operate this way, very clear about what other people are doing wrong, but unable to identify anything negative in themselves. This is just a symptom of what we might call spiritual pride. It is the sin of the older brother, the self-righteous. Jonathan Edwards wrote that spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of religion. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. This is the main handle by which the devil has hold of religious persons. Interesting. A couple of angles our pride will take in misleading us. Few of us would make the mistake of suggesting that we don't continue to sin at all, but so often we truly think that my sin, well, my sin is not as bad as his sin or her sin. You know what I'm saying? My sin, yeah, I sin, but my sin's not as bad as what they're doing. I, I may be short-tempered, but you are a lazy good-for-nothing, and that is much worse. In other words, your expressions, your expressions of depravity are way worse than mine. This is uh, subtly deceiving because it is true it's true that certain sins do cause more chaos than other sins. But even when our sins differ, when our sins differ, our sinfulness is always the same. It all comes from an essentially self-centered heart that is lacking in love and lacking in humility. So where is there room for superiority and for pride? We are so inclined by nature to think better of ourselves and worse of others, to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but not others. But then, too, we seem to seek out opportunities to compare ourselves favorably. Part of why we are drawn to gossip is that it allows us to feel superior to these scandalous persons that we whisper about. Why do folks like television shows like Dr. Phil or Jerry Springer? Why were so many caught up with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trials? Could it be that seeing others in their hot mess helps us maintain self-respect in our own lukewarm messes? We hope, we hope God grades on a curve and he sees how much worse other people are compared to us. Hey God, did you see what Pastor X did? Huh? Did you see that? 
See, really terrible what, what he did. Now see me. Different, huh? Better, yeah. But Paul lets us know that God doesn't grade on the curve, and we're foolish to think that we're going to get a passing grade on Judgment Day when we stand before a holy and perfect God. He says, don't kid yourself. So turn to your neighbor and say that right now. Tell them, don't kid yourself. Yeah, all right. Another way this sinful self-righteousness uh, leads us astray is via what I'll call the double standards. Very principled people have standards. Some even have double standards. Yeah, we have rules for others, but don't think they apply to us. By the way, did you know, did you know that Pastor Ben is a terrible gossip? Just, uh, I, 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 I'm just saying so you can pray about that. <laughs> Certain characters in history, distant and recent, serve as wonderful models of the double standard. David was caught by Nathan in this way. Remember how that went down, that con con confrontation between Nathan and David? King David had used his power to take advantage of someone weaker than him. But then uh, when the prophet Nathan presented a parallel story, David was enraged at the abuse of power that Nathan described until Nathan said to him, Thou... You are the man. So easy for parents, I think, to see this double standard at operation uh, in, their, in their own children. They don't, kids don't disguise it very well, do they? <laughs> uh, theirs is pretty blatant. Brother taking my toy is very bad, but I was just borrowing his for a few minutes. He wasn't using it anyway. Do we ever see double standards at work in the political sphere? Ever notice that? Oh, my goodness. Candidates and voters get outraged at the misbehavior of those in the opposing party, but those in our own side, our own party, they really had no choice, or they were slandered by the media. Double standards like that, they're everywhere, and it seems very easy to detect, except, except, except when we are the ones with the double standard. To our own faults, we are blind. By the way, this is why you need in your life brothers and sisters around you, close to you, to help you see what your pride blocks you from being able to see. Isolated persons, even Christians, tend, tend to grow self-righteous. Marriage, <laughs> it's very useful at this point, marriage or close friends, or accountability. These can keep you more honest. Don't run from them. Welcome them as one who desires to live in the light and to be more like Jesus. Other persons, especially Christian persons, will help us evaluate ourselves more accurately, and they will also help us maintain a standard of conduct that is according to Scripture, not according to our own preferences, or our own biases, or our own conveniences, Engaging with other believers means that I am challenged to ensure that what I believe and what I teach is from God and not just from my own prejudices. We can't get away from those entirely, no. But we can put guards up against them. How can someone avoid a self-seeking subjectivity that evaluates pretty much everything by how I feel about it? Intentionally orient yourself around something that is beyond you. 
orient your life around something that is fixed and proven. The best the world can do is to say, oh, follow your heart. But our God provides us something so much better and something fixed towards which we can align our values and our conduct. So look with me again at Romans 2, verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgments on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Question mark. But oh, yes, they did. They, they did. Paul's words are for any principled religious person, but they certainly applied to the pious Jews of his day. They did believe they would escape God's judgment. They operated in a, in a false security. Plenty of that still around today. False security rooted in a mistaken self-concept. Why? They think they are good. They think they are wonderful. Judgment is only for the sinners, and that's not my crowd. No, no. Now, we've already spoken to this uh, some, but consider with me how so many false religious systems serve to promote this kind of self-righteous delusion. They do it by substituting religious rituals or community standards for the law of God. They teach that you are okay if you've been baptized in our church or you said a prayer or you joined our team, or they promote certain values that allow for a righteousness that is external, that is skin deep only. This can happen, I think, in secular cultures as well, places like Japan that are all about family honor. Misbehavior is only a problem in those cultures if you get caught and disgrace us. Avoid getting caught and you're okay. You're accepted. Uh, then there are the more Western versions of that, such as we see in Utah with the Mormons. There's a lot to like in Mormon values, as is the case in other cults, but the false religion can only serve to restrain. It will never transform. Still, it can be powerful in that it promotes the idol of community the idol of family approval. A desire to belong can keep us from the full expressions of our depravity, but it's just another ultimately enslaving idol. But sadly, it deludes us into thinking that we have passed the test and God is happy with who we are. And this is what Jesus tackles in the Sermon on the Mount when he teaches us that a, that a hateful heart is still vile even if it doesn't manifest itself in actual violence. Adultery or infidelity against my spouse can happen without touching anybody, right? That's what he says. This was revolutionary thinking, so much deeper than the thoughts of the moralizers, whether secular or religious, so much deeper than where they tend to go. You see, the self-righteous deal only addresses issues on the surface. They don't look deeply at God's law. They don't look deeply at their own hearts. If they did, their delusions would be shattered, and they would lose their hard-won comfort. What happened, by the way, to the one who demolished their delusions, who crushed the self-righteousness of the Pharisees? What happened to him? Oh, yeah, that cross business, right? Jesus was canceled. <laughs> had to be to protect our false view of self. Then I noted the deluded self-righteous have a distorted view of God. It's not, it's not wrong so much as 
incomplete. It is, it is the grandpa in the sky notion. God is just so very nice, and being nice, of course, he is going, certainly going to accept me. He's certainly going to like me. He's certainly going to want me in his kingdom. In verse 3, Paul suggests that many wrongly believe that they're going to escape judgment. In verse 4, he suggests that many believe in God's kindness and God's patience, but think, they think lightly of it. The New International Version uses the word contempt. They believe in God's kindness and patience, but how do they apply it to their lives? It becomes their basis for sin. They can trample on God's law because, well, he's so nice. He's so patient. The thought of his judgment is never entertained. Matthew Henry says, there is in every willful sin a contempt for the goodness of God. John Stott. Next slide. We stuck? Oh, there we go. God's goodness is intended to give space for repentance, not to give an excuse for sinning. But that's how many people treat it. Oh, God is so good, so loving. I'll despise his word. I'll flaunt his commands when they cross my desires. Oh, yeah. This is what we do. And, and, and it is vile. John Newton the exceeding sinfulness of sin is manifested not so much by its breaking through the restraint of threatenings and commands as by its being capable of acting against light and love. Indeed, uh, turning God's love into the support, a support for our, our cosmic treason. The apostle warns us against thinking like that, and then he tells us what a true appreciation of the love of God will do. The kindness of God leads to what? What's it say? The kindness of God leads to repentance. He says some don't seem to know this, but you and I, we're here today reading and thinking about Romans chapter 2, and so we do know this. All this talk in the church about God's goodness and God's patience and God's kindness and God's grace, what is the end game for all of that? How do we display our faith in all of that? Not by self-indulgent, carefree living with no thought of the consequences, but by repentance, by the turning from, by the renouncing of sin. Anything else, it is contempt for God's grace. And there is plenty of that going on in Jesus' name. So then, how does, how does the kindness of God lead us to repentance? Glad you asked. I have two answers. One, it convicts our hearts. Two stories about that. One, you know, as Le Mis. Le Mis. Victor Hugo writes about a criminal by the name of Jean Valjean, and he gets out of prison and he finds gracious lodging in the home of a bishop. But he, replay, he repays the clergyman's kindness by stealing from him. He took some silver, but later the police apprehended him with this silver in his possession. And when the police took Jean Valjean back to the house of the bishop and the scene of the crime, the bishop tells the police that the silver in the possession of Jean Valjean was actually a gift and uh, that he actually had more to give to the thief. And he offers these parting words to the ungrateful thief who is now, in a respect, a pardon thief. And he says, Jean Valjean, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God, end quote. The man went from there to live an upright, 
charitable life, bringing forth the fruits of repentance, a repentance won by the kindness of God, shown to him by a man of God. Jean Valjean could have once again despised this extraordinary mercy, but he was so shocked by it, sobered in soul, and he was ultimately converted by it. Now, some of us, maybe, we can reflect on the stubborn indifference in which we have lived despite the enormous, undeniable, manifold expressions of God's goodness that have been ours. From the place of our birth, to our parents that loved us, to the mentors that he sent our way, to the friends in our lives, the vast favors God bestows upon us all, all of which were undeserved, undeserved. I get very uptight listening to advertisements and political things. We, we want to give the people of western Pennsylvania the, legis, the, uh, the type of representation in Washington that they deserve. And I hear that and I think, please don't give me that car. <laughs> I want something way better than I deserve. <laughs> the kindness of God is so great. When we see it, our hearts melt and our, sins, our sin becomes to us odious and grievous. Well, the second story is, is my own. The gospel became very real and very saving for me on a Sunday near my 10th birthday when I heard a sermon on the theme of honor. The pastor had a point for each of the five letters in the word honor, H-O-N-O-R. He spoke about honoring our parents, and as he did, my heart was smitten. I had a true affection an appreciation of my mother, but I realized that I did not often treat her with honor as I should. And such a failure seemed odd to me, inexplicable, except that surely there was something foul in my soul. The kindness of God that came to me via my mother convicted me of sin. I saw I was sinning against love and by his mercy I repented. Now, over the years, I, I saw God do this again and again. In his kindness, he led me to a, a peer named David Poole who confronted me over, over sin that no one else had, had ever pointed out to me. Thank God he did that. Uh, and then God led me to Jimmy Young, my spiritual father, who was willing to tell me when I was being faithless. Thank God he did that. He led me to my wife, whose patient and challenging love has brought many things my way, but frequent repentance has been one of the most wonderful side effects of our marriage. I didn't, re I didn't marry her for that. <laughs> But it's been one of the most wonderful side effects, actually I kind of did, one of the side effects of, of, of our marriage. And I am sincere when I say that this has been and is the goodness of God in my life. His kindness doesn't leave me in my sin. He convicts me of that sin. That is his mercy. And then finally, the kindness of God changes our hearts, convicts us of sin, changes our hearts because ours is a powerful Savior. You, you and I... We love a lot of folks who continue in self-destructive habits, don't we? We wish we could change them, but God's love truly can, and God's love truly does. He sets the captives free. You see in verse 4 that the gospel end game is repentance. It is conversion. It is a changed life. Some will say it cannot be. You are what you are, and there's no changing you. But Jesus comes along and puts the lie to all of that. He turns idolaters 
into worshipers by His grace and for His glory. Repentance, conversion, renovation of soul. 2 Corinthians 5.17, read it out loud with me. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Uh, and now say, wow. 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 Here you are on June 5, 2022. And you've made a mess of things. But that can all change. Yeah, pursuing your own lust, you could have died. You, you deserve to die. But the Lord has spared you, and here you are in church, listening to the invitation of the gospel. That invitation is to contemplate the patience and the kindness of God and respond to it by saying this. Again, join with me out loud. Lord, the good Lord, I make you my Lord, and I renounce my self-righteousness and all my filthy idols in order to walk in your love, your purity, your peace, your life, and the wisdom of your word. Visit me now with a true, full, and lasting repentance. So I ask in Jesus' name, amen.